Father, thank you. Thank you for the privilege, God, for the mercy of allowing us to come around your word and around this topic of baptism, Lord, that you've spoken to us about in your word. God, I pray that you would help us, Lord. God, help us to incline our ears and hear. God, teach our hearts, teach us, Lord, to feel about these things the way you do. God, correct us, please, where we need to be corrected. Change us, God. Lord, through your word, Lord, we, we don't desire, Lord, because we know you don't desire it, God, to just have only a mere intellectual experience of your word. But, God, that you would be with us, that you would speak to us, Lord, that you would convict us, Lord, and you would conform us into the image of Christ. So, God, as we open up this topic, please help us, God. Help me, to, help me God, to teach with clarity and by the power of your Spirit. And I pray that you would help each person here, Lord, to hear, hear these things, God, clearly and by the power of your Spirit. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so when I told you about the ordinances and especially the importance of the ordinances of the local church, uh, first question would be, what are the ordinances of the local church? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. So that's the direction we're going. We're going to be talking about baptism this morning. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. The reason why they're called ordinances, because these are things that were in, ordained by Christ special, uh, in a special way uh, for His church. In other words, it's not just an individual command. I hope none of you woke up early this morning and went and baptized yourself. And uh, this is something that, that God has ordained for the local church. So this is something we're going to talk about. Uh, historically, they've been called sacraments because they, these are uh, sacred things. That's what was trying to be put forward in the word sacraments. So these were uh, sacred events that ordained by Christ. People have since moved away. A lot of people moved away from the word sacrament because of abuses of that word, especially by the Catholic Church. And so uh, I'm going to call them ordinances today. Now, we know this for sure. As you think about how you're going to hear this this morning, the ordinances of God for His local church are not to be trifled with. They are not to be taken lightly. Uh, God Himself has killed people before for taking these things too lightly. And I'm not joking about that. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where people have died for taking these issues too lightly. And not only that, I think if you look at a record of the saints of old, and how they have interacted with baptism and the Lord's Supper. You see people taking these things very, very, very seriously. You have reformers that you can read about that were literally burned at the stake for their convictions on these things. They refused to recant their positions and therefore they are burned at the stake. Men and women were given the punishment of drowning because of their convictions about baptism as a way to mock them. You want to be baptized? We'll drown you. And people have taken it that serious. There was a guy named, uh, he's a reformer from the 1500s named Balthazar Hubmeyer. Not many have heard of this guy. Last name, Hubmeyer. And uh, he was, like I said, part of the Reformation there. And he was tortured, he was racked, and he was burned at the stake for his convictions over baptism. And just a few days later, his wife, even his wife, was drowned to death for, his, for their convictions over baptism. So take a man like that that's died for these convictions and listen to what he says to us about the seriousness, the importance of these things. He says this. 
So all of those who cry, well, what about water baptism? Why all the fuss about the Lord's Supper? They're after all just outward signs. They're nothing but water, bread, and wine. Why fight about that? And here's what Hubmeyer says about people who say things such as this. They have not in their whole life learned enough to know why the signs were instituted by Christ. What they seek to achieve or toward what they should be finally directed. Namely, to gather a church, to commit oneself publicly, to live according to the word of Christ. And he goes on and on and on. And my point is, is this man took these things very seriously. Could we do the same? Could we take these things very seriously as well? They're not to be taken lightly. I would contend that the habit of most uh, churches and most Christians these days are to take these things lightly, to belittle them in our actions, to lightly esteem them in our hearts. And, And I want you to think about why. Why do we tend to lightly esteem things like the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper? And I and I want to encourage you that to at least at least at least on one level, it is a satanic attack on the church. Okay, so that sounds extreme. Yes, I'm saying spiritual warfare is one of the reasons that these things are esteemed very lightly in our church culture. Okay, and so so here's what I mean by that. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17, Revelation 12, 17, it speaks about Satan himself who turns and he says he makes war on those who keep the commandments of God and those who carry the testimony of Jesus Christ. Satan is at war with the church. Think about the individualism that's all over this culture and the way that puts an attack on the local church. That we think about us, ourselves, me, this selfish type mindset rather than the church of Jesus Christ and the people of God. And one of the casualties in this war, this, this spiritual warfare, are baptism and another is the Lord's Supper. The very, this very thing that gathers together the local church in unity. That makes a church a church in a very real sense. And he attacks these things and they're lightly esteemed in our midst. So I would say spiritual warfare is a very serious thing that would make people lightly esteem these things. What about you? Have these things been lightly esteemed in your own heart? I think reaction doctrine has affected us a lot of ways when it comes to the ordinances. We've seen people take the, the baptism and the baptism of the Lord's Supper and they take it to an extreme that's unbiblical and even heretical. And in reaction to that, we go to the other extreme and think they mean nothing at all. So in a lot of ways, reaction doctrine has caused us to lightly esteem these things. Also, just a confused culture. I mean, you think about this. How, uh, throw a hand up maybe here if you were baptized before you were actually even converted. Throw up a hand if that was you. Just a confused culture, right? That, that not even understanding what these things are about. Even the Lord's Supper itself being almost completely uh, detached altogether. Just detached from what it even means to meet together as a local church. Whereas biblically it's not detached. So because of all these reasons, I believe that we tend to lightly esteem these things. So here's my goal. This is my aim today. I want us to have clarity on one of these ordinances on baptism. I want us to have clarity on this from God's word. I want us to feel the weight of importance of these things. And I want us to be a church that obeys these things. So clarity, feeling the weight of these things. And that we would be a church that walks in obedience to to what God's word says about these things. So let's just begin by reading some scripture on these things. You can turn to Matthew 28. Go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 28. 
Now stay with me here. We're going to do a lot of flipping here at the beginning. Flipping through to see different passages in the Bible that talk about baptism. So we're going to read each one of these. We've got several verses. It's going to take us a minute to do this. So you stick with me. You lean in. Look at what God's Word says here. And I want you to especially take note when you see it talking about baptism. Matthew 28. I'm going to start in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Baptizing them. There it is. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. I hope you know how important that passage of Scripture is for every Christian's life. And right, right there in the midst of that great commission, as it is so often called, we have baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Go to Acts chapter 2. Lean into God's Word here. Let's just get familiar, because I'm going to re reference a lot of these passages as we talk through baptism today. So I just want you to be familiar with them as I reference them. Acts chapter 2. Look at verse 38. So Peter's already preached the gospel to these people. These, many of these people have been convicted of their sins. And they say, Peter, what must we do? How do we respond to this gospel? And he says this in verse 38. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. There's that word. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of of the Holy Spirit. Go to Acts chapter 8. Verse 12 and 13. We've got Philip. Philip has landed in a city in Samaria. He's in this particular city in Samaria. And he's preached the gospel there. And, he, and people are beginning to respond to the gospel. Look at verse 12. But when they believed Philip. As he preached good news about the kingdom of God. In the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So these people believed and were baptized. And even the, the center of all sinners in that area, which would be this Simon guy, believed and was baptized. Go to verse 36, chapter 8, verse 36. Just get familiar with these. In verse 36, we have, again, Peter has gone out to speak the gospel, to preach the gospel to this Ethiopian eunuch. He catches up with him in a chariot. He catches him reading Isaiah, and he shares the gospel with him from that verse. And here's the response, verse 36. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. He baptized him. All right, go to Acts chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 47 right here. So Peter has preached the gospel. 
to this uh, man named Cornelius and his household and some of his friends. And he preached the gospel to them and they responded. And God sent his spirit and saved their soul. And look at verse 47. Peter's speaking and he says, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. You can keep going. Acts 16. Let's read just a couple more. There's several of these in the, in the book of Acts. We're not mentioning all of them. We skipped Paul's salvation and baptism. But let's just read a couple more. Acts 16. Now Paul has taken the gospel to Philippi. He's preached the gospel in Philippi. And he's gotten some responses. Look at verse. Acts 16 verse 14. About Lydia. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia. From the city of Thyatira. A seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, say, and it goes on. So here's this lady. God opened her heart to receive the things spoken, the gospel. And then she was baptized, it says in verse 15. Go down just a little bit to verse 30. Verse 30, same place in Philippi. Paul preaches the gospel to a man who's a jailer there. He's a prison guard there in Philippi. Something happens. It blows this man away. Verse 30. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He says, How can I be saved? Paul and Silas. In verse 31. And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus. And you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, washed their wounds, and listen, and he was baptized at once. And he was baptized. There's several more in Acts, but let's get out of the book of Acts, go to Romans. Romans chapter 6. There's a certain way baptism is talked about in the letters of the New Testament. These epistles from, from Paul and from Peter. To these churches or to these individuals. And I just want to read a couple of these. Romans chapter 6. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus. Is what he says about him in the church there. That we, we who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And one more. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. I appreciate you flipping with me through these. Galatians chapter 3. Verse 26 and 27. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. I love that. Through faith in Christ Jesus, you become a son of God. For, it's a connector word here, so for, so keep that in mind. You're sons of God through faith in Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So he's speaking about these people who have been baptized into Christ. And what he means, these people who've had faith in Jesus Christ who are sons of God. So we're talking about baptism in these letters, okay? So this is kind of an overview of these verses. I want you to be familiar with them. I'm going to reference these 
as we talk through this today. So let's start with just kind of an overview of what it is, what is baptism, and an overview of its importance. What it is and its importance. If you just read what we just read, the, the physical picture that comes into your mind, or, or at least the physical picture that should come into your mind, when you read through the New Testament, it's not hard to see biblically. It's not hard to see it biblically. The word baptize, it normally means to be immersed or to be immersed in water. Uh, it's obviously a sacred event. According to what we just read, it's a sacred event in a believer's life. In other words, it's not just... It's not just being accident, not accidentally falling in the pool, being immersed in water. It's not the baptism we're talking about here. We're talking about this sacred event in a believer's life of being immersed in water here. In the Gospels, we see them baptizing in a certain place because water was plentiful there. That's in John 3, 23. Why are we baptizing in this place? Because water is plentiful in this place. Uh, we see also those being baptized. It says they go, they come up out of the water in Mark 1.10. So the physical picture is not hard to see. Or if you read what we just read about uh, the Ethiopian eunuch. Here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? And they went down into the water. And they came back up out of that water. The physical picture is not hard to see of people being baptized. being Those being immersed into water as a sacred event for for believers. Now, as I've already expressed, this is important. It is very, very important. Now, we're going to get into more detail, but let me just kind of give an overview of why this is so important. It's closely connected to the gospel response. Acts 2.38, these people that want to know how to be saved, he looks at them and says, listen to me, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ. For the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's closely connected to the gospel response. So how important is the gospel response to you? How you respond to the gospel as a follower of Christ? Well then baptism is right there closely connected to that. It's very important. Also, it speaks of the very nature of our conversion. Romans 6, we'll get there more in a minute, but it mentions our baptism going, being buried in that water and raised up out of it as showing the very nature of our conversion. How important is your conversion to you and the nature of it, of you being united to Christ? Well, then baptism is closely connected to that. Also, it's intimately connected to the mission of God. Matthew 28, go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. Good luck being all about the mission of God, but belittling baptism. It's right there connected to the mission of God. It's in the very definition. Also, it's in the very definition of what a church is. Biblically, a church is those, those baptized folks right there. There's people who are, are baptized. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But think about that. How important is the local church to you? How important is the church of Jesus Christ? And baptism is closely connected. It's right there connected to what are in the, defi the very definition of the church. Now, I hope this kind of overview, this way of thinking helps you to see the importance of this subject. But what I want to do now is I want to slow down and I want us to consider step by step the, the clarity of our understanding. Do we have clarity in our understanding baptism? And I want us to feel the appropriate weight of this subject. Okay. So I've got five points to that. They're right there on your study guide. Five points to put before us. Do you view these things with clarity? 
And do you feel the appropriate weight of baptism? So number one, number one there in your study, God, is baptism is a Christian's first act of outward obedience. It's a Christian's first act of outward obedience. Now, here's what I mean. Baptism in the Bible is now presented as a suggestion. Okay? Followers of Christ are not, you know, asked, hey, will not you consider being baptized? It is a command according to God's word. It is a command. So in Acts 2.38, he looks at them and says, repent and be baptized. He commands them this. The one in Acts chapter 10 that we read. Let me read that to you again. Acts 10.48, it says this. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. If you think about Matthew 28.19, go make disciples baptizing them and teaching them all that I've commanded you. You get a definition of what a disciple even is there. Make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey. It means a a disciple in, in the definition is a baptized one who is under the lordship of Jesus Christ, the teaching of Jesus Christ. So it's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's a command for the Christian from God's word. Now it's intended to be the first act of outward obedience for a Christian in that it's a part of the gospel response, the way you respond to the gospel. Now, what if I asked you that? What if I said, brothers and sisters, what is the gospel response? Okay, you got the gospel, you got God, his majesty and holiness and sinful man that deserves nothing but punishment from this holy God. That's just the backdrop. Christ Jesus comes into the world to save sinners, to rescue, dies for our sins, risen from the grave. How must we respond to that? What if I asked you that? What is the gospel response? How would you how would you answer that question? And I would imagine and I would even hope that many of you would say repentance and faith. That the way you respond to the gospel is repentance and faith. Mark 1.15, he says, he says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repentance and faith is the proper response to the gospel message. So you'd be right. You would be absolutely right in that answer. But I want you to notice how the Bible takes baptism and it puts it right alongside repentance and faith in that gospel response. Okay, think about Acts 2.38 again. How do they respond? Repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus. Do you hear that? Do you hear that? Sometimes we only hear verses like that in these, these debates over false doctrine. Kind of, but I want you to hear it from that angle. You need to understand that. But let's not go there yet. Listen, he just says, he looks at them and says, repent and be baptized. And he takes these, these two things, the, the gospel response. And he puts baptism right there alongside it. Let me show you another one we hadn't read that does that. Acts 22. Acts 22 and verse uh, verse 16. This is Paul giving a uh, giving an account of when Ananias came to him and Paul came to Christ. And he says this in verse 16. This is what Ananias said to him. And now, why do you wait? He's speaking to Paul. Why do you wait, Paul? Rise and be baptized. And wash away your sins, calling on his name. So listen again to how the baptism is put right into that gospel response. Rise, be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on 
His name. Now, we don't tend to think about things like that these days, do we? Could you ever see yourself looking at somebody? You're walking in an evangelism conversation. You're sharing the gospel. Could you ever imagine yourself looking at them and saying, Brother, what are you waiting on? Rise. Be baptized. Wash away your sins and call on the name of Christ. We don't tend to think like that. Now, we tend to take the we, we tend to separate the outward gospel response of baptism. We tend to separate that from the inward gospel response of repentance and faith. And we tend to separate those more than the Bible does. Now, why? Why do we do that? Why do we do that? And I'd say I, I believe the main reason, at least the reason I could give you in my own life, is because we are afraid of that heresy, that dangerous heresy that some people call baptismal regeneration. Now, let me explain that because that's actually a very legitimate concern. It's a legit concern that could that could move you to separate baptism, that outward response to the gospel from the inward response of Repentance and faith. Baptismal regeneration is this idea that because of your baptism and through your baptism, as if you can earn your way into heaven, somehow you can be saved. That this way, someone's treating the waters of baptism as some kind of magic response. As if they have magical powers to save you. It's baptismal regeneration. The Pentecostals believe this. Church of Christ believe this. Roman Catholics walk in this kind of doctrine. So let me affirm very, very quickly that that is false teaching. That's false doctrine. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 and 9 says, It is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourself, it's a gift of God. Not of works lest anyone should boast. Do you hear that? It's by grace of God through faith. Not your own works. Not you earn your way in by your baptism. In fact, Paul himself, Paul said... Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. If the baptism itself has this saving effect, as in it regenerates you, then why would we preach the gospel? Just dunk people. We get, get J.R. Burnett to just come unglued, drowning people all the time. That would be our evangelism technique. But he says, Christ didn't send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. So baptism is a part of the gospel response, but not so as to deny salvation to those who have not been baptized. For example, the thief on the cross, right? Saved, you'll be with me in paradise and not yet, not yet baptized. But, but, but have you ever considered why that heresy of baptismal regeneration, why is it even able to endure? Why is it able to stick around for so many centuries? Why? And at least part of the reason is because the Bible places such an importance on baptism. It doesn't deal with that issue by demeaning baptism. It places such an important importance in baptism as a gospel response that, that sometimes uh, people can twist those scriptures to, to say something like baptismal regeneration, which is false doctrine. So I want you to think about this. The, saint, the saints of old, you can, okay, you can read the saints of old, some of the first Christian leaders, uh, or even in, in the Bible and outside the Bible, and you can think about how did they deal with this? Okay, how did they continue to exalt the importance of baptism as a gospel response, and at the same time, not do what so many have done today, to where it gets, it gets, uh, it gets demeaned or something like that. So, so how do they not hold to, to the false 
teaching of baptism and regeneration and yet still exalt baptism. How did they do that? And I'll give you two quick examples. One is in the Westminster Catechism from the 1600s. Famous catechism, Westminster Catechism. This is what they said. This is question 161 in that catechism. How do the sacraments become effective, a, an effective means of salvation? Now some of us go, whoa. What did they say? How do the sacraments become an effective means of salvation? That's strong language that shows the importance of baptism as a gospel response. But listen to the answer they give. The sacraments become effectual means of salvation, not, listen, not by any power in themselves or any virtue deemed from, derived from piety or intention of him by whom they are administered, but only by the working of the Holy Ghost and the blessing of Christ by whom they are instituted. So did you hear that? This importance of baptism lifted up and yet not the... Baptism itself regenerates you as, is, as in the heresy of baptismal regeneration. But even more important than the Westminster Catechism would be the Apostle Peter himself. And you can read what he says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. Listen to what he says. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this. And he's referring to some things that went down with Noah being saved through water. But baptism, which now corresponds to this, now saves us. Whoa, what did he say? Next phrase, he says, not as a removal of dirt from the body. Do you get what he's saying? So he's a strong language that exhausts the importance of this as a gospel response. But at the same time, not as if some kind of magical potion, as if baptism saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body. You go in the water, your body's cleansed, and somehow that regenerates you. He says, not that. But it's the answer of a good conscience towards God. He's speaking about faith toward God in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. So the Bible is what I want you to see overall. The Bible intimately connects repentance and faith and baptism as gospel responses, the way we should respond to the gospel. And when you when the Bible typically mentions one part of those three, it typically assumes the other. So, for example, you guys know that between repentance and faith, right? In Acts 2, what must we do to be saved? He says, repent and be baptized. Acts 16, the jailer says, what must I do to be saved? He says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see what's happening here? That when he mentions one, he assumes the others. And that same thing happens with baptism. You see it, for example, in Romans chapter 6. He says, as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus... Have been baptized into his death. Now you might argue with Paul. Say wait a minute. Not everybody Paul. Who's been baptized. Is actually converted and saved. And baptized into his death. And, and, and what I'm getting at. Is that's true. What, what we're saying is true. But the Bible doesn't even hardly have categories. In this time for that. That repentance, faith and baptism. They just came together. If he said these are the baptized ones. He's assuming these are they. That have repented and believed. They come together. <clears throat> There's actually a technical term for this. I was debating whether I was going to say it to you because I can't say the words. Synecdoche. Thanks for the curtain. Synecdoche. You don't need to know that. No, I'm not spelling it. 
But what that means is a figure of speech. This is what that means. A figure of speech when a part is meant to represent the whole. Okay. So for example, if somebody says, hey, all hands on deck. What do they mean? Just leave your hands on the deck? No, you mean with the whole body, right? We need your help there. Or, man, we need some boots on the ground. Boots is meant to represent the whole. And in the same way, repentance and baptism, excuse me, repentance, faith, and baptism are, are spoken about that way throughout the Word of God. I want you to see how closely connected it is with the gospel response. So here's, here's what we mean. Let me close this point out. Baptism is the Christian's first act of outward obedience as a part of his gospel response. Okay, so the invisible, the invisible response is repentance and faith and the visible, the visible response is baptism. To use Bobby Jameson's phrase, he says it like this. Baptism is faith gone public. Now, how important is that? Baptism is faith gone public. It really puts a Matthew 10, 32 type importance on baptism, right? Jesus says, if you confess me before men, I confess you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me before men, I deny you before my Father in heaven. And baptism is this, I confess him before men. It's faith gone public. The first act of outward obedience for the Christian. I hope you see that. And I hope you see it as important. Second point. A little quicker here. Baptism marks out the church from the world. Baptism, number two, marks out the church from the world. Turn, turn to Acts 14. Acts 14. A couple places you can see this. That baptism marks out the church from the world. <clears throat> Now, I'm going to read a verse in Acts 14, verse 21. But before I do, I want, you, I, want to hear, I want you to hear this. In verse 21 and 22, it says they made many disciples. Now, that phrase in Acts 14, 21 through 23, made many disciples, is directly linked to Matthew 28 when he says, go make disciples. In fact, it's the only place where those phrases are so close together like that, okay? So here's what we know. Matthew 28, go make disciples. What do you mean? Baptizing them and teaching them. Okay? How do you make disciples? Baptizing them and teaching them. So what should come to your mind when you hear make disciples here? Okay, so read it with me. Verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples. Now listen to me. They have gone to city after city after city after city. Preaching the gospel made many disciples. Preaching the gospel made many disciples. Preaching the gospel made many disciples. What are they doing in those places? Preaching the gospel, souls are saved, baptizing them and strengthening them, teaching them. You see, that's what's happening there. And then you get to verse 23 and it says, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church. You say, what? Where did the church come from? There's no church, no believers in this city. They preach the gospel. They baptized them, made many disciples, baptized them, began to teach them and strengthen them in that way. And all of a sudden he says, there's a church there. Baptism marks off the church. It marks off the church from the world. Let me show you another place. Acts chapter 2. Verse, uh, Paul's pre uh, excuse me, Peter's preached the gospel to them. They turn to Christ and verse 41 says, 
So those who received the word were baptized. There it is. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted it. And then it gives you this picture in verse 42 of the local church in Jerusalem. So who's the church there? It's those baptized ones. It marks off the church from the world. You can see this in several other places in the book of Acts. I, th- I believe you see it in those epistles when he says, he says, as, uh, Romans chapter 6, for example, he says, uh, I just lost it. As many of us as were baptized into Christ have been baptized in his death. So that's the way he talks about the church there in Rome. As many of us as were baptized. The baptized one, it marks off the church from the world. I believe a quick read through the New Testament reveals this. There's confessions of faith that, that say something, they usually say something like this. The visual church is a congregation of baptized believers. The visual church is a congregation of baptized believers. So it's to mark off the church from the world. It's in the church are those baptized ones. Let me say it another way. Baptism is meant to mark off those who come under the name of God. They take on His name. Think about Matthew 28 again. Baptize them in what? Baptize them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. They take on the name of God. Like a wife taking on the name of her husband. I belong to you, she says. You belong to me. It's to identify with Christ, to come under the banner of His name. We identify with Christ through baptism. We, it, it's a... It's a, it's a here, I, my loyalty is to you, Lord Jesus, to you, God. I come under your name in baptism. It's to swear allegiance to the King of glory. God, baptize me in your name. It's a very weighty symbol. But even before we understand the symbolism, we know that it's weighty because it's to identify with Christ. Okay? Baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So baptism marks off the church from the world. I I believe this is the reason that not only are individual believers commanded to be baptized. We've already seen that, right? It's a command for individual believers to be baptized. But also, the church is commanded to baptize. Think about that in Matthew 28. Go before and make disciples, baptizing them. They are commanded to baptize them. That's the reason through the book of Acts. They're commanding them, be baptized, and they baptize them. Why? Because as the church baptizes, marking off, the church is supposed to be about the business of marking off those who come under the name of Christ that are in Christ Jesus from the world. That's what the church is. You can think of it like circumcision in some ways. Some of you got nervous. Just as circumcision marks off those who were born into the old covenant people of God. Think about that. Just as circumcision marked those people off. Even so, baptism marks off those who are born again. Keyword, again. Into the new covenant people of God. In baptism, the believer is not only saying. He's not only saying, I identify with Christ. But the believer in baptism is saying, I identify with the body of Christ. Can you imagine doing one without the other? Identify with Christ, but ignore His body, which the Word of God calls the church. It's not only to identify with Christ, but with the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, we see a very clear example of that. It says, in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. 
In one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. So think about that for a minute. In baptism, the individual is saying, I belong to Christ and to his church. And in baptizing, the church is saying, you belong to Christ and to us. And in baptism, God is saying, y'all belong to me. Marks off the church from the world. Number three. Number three. Baptism is a sign that signifies the work of Christ in those who have been converted. In other words, it's a sign. It's symbolic in nature. Baptism is. Now we know the importance of this ordinance before we even understand the reason. You know, why baptism? You know, I mean, he could have... He could have chosen any sign, right? All those who were converted could have gotten a ring or something. But he didn't do it that way. He says baptism. That's the sign. Why this sign? But before we even know the answer to that, we know how important this is because it's commanded. Because it marks off the church. We know that. But understanding what it points to in its symbolism just heightens the importance of baptism. So why this specific sign? Once you see baptism like that, it's a physical sign that you can see that points to a spiritual reality that you cannot see. Now, William Tyndale got this. And I just want to read this to you. 500 years ago. If you know who William Tyndale is, awesome. If you don't, you need to look him up. It's an awesome story. It's why you have, part of why you have an English Bible in your lap. William Tyndale spoke about the symbolism like this. Listen. The washing... He means baptism. The washing of baptism preacheth unto us. He's saying baptism preaches something to us. It's symbolic. Listen. The washing preacheth, preacheth unto us that we are cleansed with Christ's bloodshedding, which was an offering and a satisfaction for the sin of all that repent and believe. The plunging into the water signifieth that we die. And are buried with Christ as concerning the old life of sin which is in Adam. And the pulling out again of the water signifieth that we rise again with Christ in a new life full of the Holy Ghost. So why this specific sign? And what William Tyndale has given are these, these spiritual realities that it points to. So let me mention, there's more than this, but let me mention three Spiritual realities that this sign points to that even Tyndale himself right there mentioned. Number one, and I believe probably most obviously, would be the washing or the cleansing from sin that comes to all those who come to Christ. You come to Christ, you've been washed. You've been cleansed. And, and baptism is meant to point to that, okay? Think about it. The body is plunged into the water. The body is lifted up out of the water. And the dirt on the body... Is washed clean. What a picture. What a picture as the dirt comes off. In Acts 22, 16, we see this being the, the symbolism as he says, Arise, be baptized, and wash, wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So the phrase there next to baptism is wash away your sins. You see, sins are spoken of, they're pictured here as dirt on your body. They're, Sin is pictured as uncleanness. Because of your dirt, your uncleanness, you can't come before God. You don't deserve to come before God in your uncleanness and the dirt on your soul. And sin is pictured that way. But it says Jesus comes to remove the dirt. 
He comes to die in your place. He, he comes on a rescue mission and He goes to the cross because our uncleanness is put upon Jesus at the cross. And so the dirt and uncleanness that separates us from God, we can be reconciled to Him now because Christ has gone to the cross for us and took the dirt of our sin onto Himself. Wash away your sins is what it says there. And so I think every time you see a baptism, a believer washed in water, Revelation 1.5 should be flooding your mind. Listen to Revelation 1.5. To Him who loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood. And you see the person go into the water, you think to Him who loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood. Second picture, illustration, or spiritual reality is signified is union with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. Union with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. Think about it. As you go under the water, you're reminded that Christ has died and that He was buried. And that because you were united to Him, you died, your old man died, old self died and buried and done away with. And as as you come up out of the water, you're, you're reminded of something else. Praise God, you'll stay under the water, right? But you come up out of the water and you're reminded that Christ didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave and because you're united to Him, you also are raised to walk in newness of life. You're raised as a new creation in Christ. And you're reminded of that. Baptism is a celebration of that spiritual reality that every one of us who have been converted have been raised from the dead. Raised from the dead. And I'm getting all of this from Romans chapter 6. Let's go back there and read a little bit. A little bit more carefully. Romans chapter 6. Go there with me. Your baptism points to these spiritual realities in Romans chapter 6. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, there it is. He's just assuming the believers there have been baptized into Christ Jesus. We're baptized into His death. We were buried, therefore, with Him. Hear the union? Like a branch hooked to the vine. You're buried, therefore, with Him. By baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You say, man, I'm not catching this. Keep reading, look. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self, you know, the one that deserves hell forever, our old self was crucified with Him. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we know, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Let me just stop there. Set free from sin because you're united to Christ. And the old man died with Christ, symbolized by going under that water and raised up to walk in newness of life. Church of Jesus, you're set free. Sin has no hold on you. And it can't eternally condemn you. Third spiritual reality that baptism points to. 
The staring your study guide is baptized. It's to be baptized in the Spirit. Those in Christ are baptized in the Spirit. I say that baptism in water points to this because the same, same word here. Baptized in water. Baptized in Spirit. Same word. Just as I was immersed into water, I, I have been, by the grace of Jesus Christ, immersed into the Spirit of God. Acts chapter 10. It's a good place. I can just read this to you. Acts chapter 10. Verse 44 says, While Peter was still saying these things, these things of the gospel, he's speaking to them. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. So, so these people come to Christ. They hear the gospel message. They respond in repentance and faith. They come to Christ. The Holy Spirit falls upon them. And in verse 47, it says, Can we withhold water? It's water baptism. Can we withhold water for baptizing these people who have, look, received the Holy Spirit just as we have? You know what this is saying? When it gets down to the heart of it, it gets down to this. This is talking about the greatest gift of the gospel. You've heard me say that before, a lot of you. The greatest gift of the gospel is what? You get to live forever, you get heaven, you don't have to go to hell. What's the greatest gift of the gospel? It's that you get God. You get Him. This says that those who come to Christ, those who believe in Him, are sealed with the Holy Spirit. They receive the Spirit of God. And as you're immersed in the water, you are reminded. I was reminded that I was immersed in the Spirit of God. I got God. The bad, the bad news is what? The bad news, the, the worst of the bad news is that you are separated from God. Your sin has separated you from God so that He will not hear. Because of our sin, we're separated from God. In the sense that He views us as enemies that He's going to punish forever. But the good news, that's the bad news, but what's the good news? That Christ comes to reconcile the people to Himself. So that now, 1 Peter 3.18, Christ suffered one time for sinners, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God. You get God baptized in the Spirit of God. Baptism is such a sweet, sweet sign that points to these three things and other things. Other spiritual realities. But let's just stop there. I encourage you to see it as a sign. Number four. Baptism is a means of grace. It's a means of grace. Here's why I mention this. Baptism is often seen as, as only commemorative or as only a ceremony to remind us of something. That's typically the way baptism is viewed. But it's a means of grace. It's a means of grace. It's a channel through which God blesses with His power and His, His, His help and His presence. It's a channel. Baptism is a channel through which that happens for the one being baptized and for the church that baptizes now, I think this, this heightens the importance, but it also can be easily misunderstood. So let me try to speak plainly about what I mean about baptism being a means of grace. Listen to Wayne Grudem. This is from his Systematic Theology. Wayne Grudem says this. Although we must avoid the Roman Catholic teaching that grace is imparted even apart from faith of the person being baptized... We must not react so strongly to this error that we say that there's no spiritual benefit at all that comes from baptism. That the Holy Spirit does not work 
through it and that it is merely symbolic. You see what he's saying? Beware of responding to the false doctrine that just being baptized saves you apart from repentance and faith. Beware of that, but don't let it move you into seeing baptism as merely symbolic. Grudem goes on to say, it is better to say that where there is genuine faith on the part of the person being baptized and where the faith of the church that watches the baptism is stirred up and encouraged by the ceremony, then the Holy Spirit certainly does work through baptism. And it becomes a means of grace through which the Holy Spirit brings blessing to the person being baptized and to the church as well. So, a means of grace. Here's what I don't mean. I do not mean that baptism somehow calls down God's grace apart from repentance of faith. I don't mean that. It's false teaching. I don't mean that baptism somehow earns your getting of grace from God. That would redefine the word. Okay, it doesn't earn that way. As if God owes me something because I was baptized. That's not what I mean. So what do I mean? Here's, here's what I mean by being a means of of grace. It's a means of grace in the same way the Word of God is. The Bible, the Word of God that most of you hold in your laps is a means of grace. Let me explain that because it will help you understand baptism. John 17, 17 says this. Jesus is praying to the Father. Father, sanctify them. Sanctify them. Who sanctifies believers? God does. So Jesus prays, Father, sanctify them. So you see, God sanctifies. That's important to know. So that you don't, five years from now, if you grow and you look more like Jesus, you have, you have been sanctified more and more. And somebody says, man, how did you grow like you have grown? You don't pat yourself on the back and say, because I read my Bible so much. You say, God sanctified me. So Jesus says, Father, sanctify them by your truth. And your word is true. So God does the sanctifying, but He uses the means of the word of God, the truth of God's word, to do the sanctifying. Now, I love this term. Because this term keeps us from thinking, we sanctified ourselves. No, it's God who does that. And it also keeps us from saying, I'm just waiting around for God to sanctify me. No, He uses means to do that. Put yourself under the falsehood of God's word. And He's going to sanctify you through that as a means to bless you, as a means to help you. So the word of God is a means of grace. In other words, your time in the word this morning, when you woke up this morning and you woke in your Bible and you began to read God's word. You didn't just say, I hope you didn't just see it as just a cerebral thing, just, a, just an intellectual thing. Of, you know, I had not learned everything. I need to learn a couple more facts today. I hope you saw your time in the Word as you know what? I want to hear from the living God. I want to be sanctified. I want to become like Him. Oh God, speak to me today. God, come and commune with me today. God, let me experience your presence through your Word today. It's a means of grace. And in the same way, baptism is not meant to be merely cerebral, intellectual. It's meant to be a means of grace where God, God grants grace through that. He gives grace through the channel of baptism as we live it out in the individual and in the church that is doing the baptism. So think about it like this. Baptism is a sign like my wedding ring. Okay, My wedding ring symbolizes that I belong to Lydia and hers that she belongs to me. It's a symbol. So baptism is like my ring and it's a symbol. It's a sign. But baptism is not like my ring. And this ring does not call down any grace from God Almighty. 
But when you walk in this, when the church walks in baptism, it is a means of grace. Say, God, move in this, in this time, for the glory of your name, for the good of our souls. Baptism is a means of grace. Now, is there any kind of scriptural basis for this? And I would just say yes and amen. You could turn, uh, don't turn there now. We've, we've read it a couple times. But if you go to Romans chapter 6 and just think about baptism in Romans 6. Why is Paul, why is Paul turning their attention to their baptism and to what their baptism signifies? Why does Paul do that? Is he doing it because he just thought they forgot? I bet they forgot they got baptized. Let me remind them of that. Is that the reason? Or does he do that because he, look, he, he, said, he said, I want you to remember this. I want you to draw your attention to your baptism and what it signifies. Why? As a way to fight sin, right? Let not sin reign in your mortal body is what it says in that passage. Be obedient from the heart. These commands, these teachings of Christ. You see what he said? It's meant to move you according to Romans, Romans chapter 6. So who is, who is baptism a means of grace for? It's for the one being baptized, of course. It's for the gathered church doing the baptism and even throughout your life. And I, and I would just say this, even if you never, if this is the first time you've thought about baptism as a means of grace, if this is the first time you've thought about that, you've, you've probably, I know this because I know you as brothers and sisters, you've probably experienced it as a means of grace before you even knew that term. You think about times that we've had baptisms here and our brothers and sisters have identified with Christ and God moved in that time and He melted your heart and He drew you out to see the glory of Christ and the death of the believer and the resurrection of the believer. And it caused your heart to give praise to Him as God revealed Himself through that time. You have, most of you have experienced it in baptism as a means of grace and that's the way we need to pursue it. I hope you're encouraged to pursue baptism not just as a sign to check it off the list. We remember that, but as a means of grace. Number five, quickly. Number five, baptism is a gift from God. Now, I'm just getting that from the Bible. You know, it didn't say that man was baptizing and God said, hey, I'll use that. It's God's idea. It was his idea. He came up with this. He instituted this when he said, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. It was his idea to do this. It's a gift from God. Baptism is a gift from God. Do you view it that way? Do you view baptism, your baptism, baptisms in this church? Do you view them as a precious gift from God? Think about it. What love from God to give us this tangible sign as a token of his love and a token of his his faithfulness to us. What a loving act of God to give us baptism. I think we should certainly pursue baptism as a means of grace. And as obedience to God, but we've got to see it as a precious, precious gift from Him of His love. Now, in the same way we speak to God, here's a way you can, it'll help you think of it as a gift from Him. In the same way we speak to God through our baptism, that, that, that we are swearing allegiance to the King of glory. In the same way, He speaks to us through this gift of baptism. I want you to think about baptism as God is screaming to you. You are mine. You belong to me. You, you have taken on my name. You are the people of my name. You are united to my son. Buried with him. Raised from the dead. You belong to me. You are washed from your sins. Your sins will never return to bite you. 
They've been washed away, cast into the depths of the sea. And, and God gifts us with baptism as a way to scream that to us in a very tangible way. I was thinking about it like this. On my wedding day, on my wedding day, I publicly identified myself as belonging to Lydia now Sullivan. Lydia Sullivan. I identified myself publicly through this ring and through that ceremony and this ring. I identified as I belonged to her. Now that was amazing, but let me tell you what's more amazing. That she, through the ring and the ceremony, was willing to identify as belonging to me. Now that's crazy. She should have never done that. But that's awesome. I, I identified as belonging to her. And then even more than she identified as belonging to me. And when I was baptized, I publicly identified as belonging to Christ. Now that's amazing. That is amazing that I get to do that. But even more amazing than that is that God makes a public declaration. It's His idea. It's His, His gift that He belongs to me. That He is mine and I'm His. And He says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. What a sweet gift. A precious gift that God gives. Let's close out by talking about how we should respond. Uh, Baptism. How should we respond uh, individually and corporately to all of this? I hope you see baptism with some clarity and the importance of it. But how should we respond? We've got to respond. Uh, James 1.22 that says there's such a thing as those who hear the word. They enjoy that. But they're not doers of the word. They don't respond to it. Okay? We, have, we, can, we can be a certain way doctrinally, and yet it, the, the, the boots don't hit the ground, right? So how do we respond individually? That's what should you and I do? And corporately, what should we as a church do in response? And I will just put before you, there are three kind of individuals in this room right now. Three kind of individuals. One is the unconverted are in this room, more than likely right now. Unconverted people. And that's whether you've been baptized or not. You may be here and be unconverted. I mean, you're not saved. You don't know Christ. Number two, you've got those who have been converted, but for certain reasons, not baptized. Converted, but unbaptized. And then you've got those who have been converted and who have been baptized. Now, where do you fall? Because I want to speak to each of those three types and there's three categories of people. So number one, to the unconverted, my plea is very, very simple to the unconverted. I plead with you, Acts 2.38. I plead with you, Acts 2.38. This is what he says. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forg- you need forgiveness of sin. For the forgiveness of your sins. And you receive the gift of... Of the Holy Spirit. Now here's the thing. I'm guessing that if you're here and you're lost today. There's a high chance that you've been pled with like that before. And, and I'm telling you. Listen. It's not too late for you. Do you feel what they felt when they heard that? Because when, when Peter preached that. It said that those people that were hearing the gospel. They were cut to the heart. That means they were convicted of their sin. Do you feel that if you're here and you're lost today? Do you feel convicted of your sin? If you do, listen, repent and be baptized. You need the forgiveness of your sins. And I call you to that. But you've got to do it before it's too late. Do you know how many people feel cut to the heart? That same phrase is used later on in Acts for people that don't turn to God. They persecute the people of God. Do you know how many people get cut to the heart at some point and they ignore it and they ignore it and they ignore it and they die and they go to hell forever? And I'm pleading with you before it's too late. 
If you're like these people and you're cut to the heart, if the conviction of your sins, whether it comes from today or just throughout your life, come to Him. Believe in Him and publicly identify Him with Him before all. The one who died for you is worthy. Second group of people. To the converted, but unbaptized. And I just mean not baptized since you've been converted. And that can be for different reasons. It can be because you're just indifferent to this command for some reason. It can be because of different beliefs and views of baptism. But whatever. Just let me speak to that group. Converted, but not baptized. My plea to you is also very, very simple. And here it is. This is the plea. What are you waiting for? With all this been said, what are you waiting for? Be baptized. Let me, let me read this to you again. In Acts 22. I'm getting that from Acts 22, 16. Listen. And now, why do you wait? Why do you wait? Rise and be baptized. Wash away your sins. Calling on the name of the Lord. Now look, I'm not insinuating that you're not saved. I'm not. Although if somebody just had an attitude of, you know what? I don't want to be baptized. I'm not going to be baptized. Then yes, you should absolutely doubt they really know Christ. But that's typically not the case for anybody here. For, for the people that I know here, it's that's, that's not you. But, but, but I still, I read this verse. You listen to the phrase. Now, why do you wait? Is it not a command from God? Does it not, does it not publicly identify you with Christ? Does it not uh, represent the, the resurrection of the believer from the dead and therefore the resurrection of Christ? So what are you waiting for? Is it pride? Is it apathy to the command? What is it? And that'd be my simple plea to any here who've not been baptized. Be, be baptized. It's a means of grace to you and it's a means of grace even to the church. Third category of people, those who are converted and you've been baptized, let me, let me encourage you to do something. I want to encourage you to improve your baptism. Improve your baptism. You say, what's that mean? That's the old school way of saying, God's given you baptism as a sign. He's given it to you as a means of grace. Use it. Don't waste it if something just happened back there somewhere. But use it. Use it. Improve your baptism. Is the way they used to say it. Listen to this is also in the Westminster Catechism. Question 167. He says this. How is our baptism to be improved by us? And here's the answer that they give. The needful but much neglected duty of improving our baptism. Which I agree, agree is much neglected. Even from my own end. These things have encouraged my soul. Not to treat it just as something that happened in the past. But to improve my own baptism. It says. This needful and much neglected duty of improving our baptism. Is to be performed by us. All our life long. Especially in time of temptation. And when we are present at the administration of baptism to others. By. So here. How do you do that? How do you make the most of it? How do you improve upon it? It says by serious and thankful consideration of the nature of it and of the ends for which Christ instituted it, the privileges and the benefits conferred and sealed thereby. And he just goes on and on and on of, of drawing strength from what God has done and the sign that he's given to you. Draw strength from it. Let it humble you. Let it strengthen you. That's the idea. In other words, don't let baptism become this intellectual thing that you just discuss and debate. 
Doesn't baptism become that way among us? Doesn't it so often become just this thing that we just discuss and debate when we disagree with a group of other people about it? But rather, don't let it be that way. Let it be something that melts your heart, that draws you close to God, that causes you to worship God, that makes you go towards holiness, that humbles you, that you draw straight. Let it be something that is a means of grace to you in your life. Which, which that brings me to my final, final point here, a corporate response. What should our corporate response as a church? Grace Community Church, how should we respond to these truths about baptism? You know, we're going to do a baptism again, a baptism meeting here soon, very shortly. About five or six or so people that have expressed desire to be baptized. And we're about to move in that direction pretty soon. And God willing, think about this. For the rest of our lives, we'll be doing that together. For the rest of our lives. Can you imagine that? Now I realize people move off here and there and stuff like that. But for so many of us, for the rest of our days, we might see, imagine seeing our children come to Christ and be baptized. Sinners coming in, lost, man. And if they come to Christ, they're coming in being baptized. Those who realize that they've been disobedient in the past, coming to be, we're going to be doing this together for the rest of our lives. And I want to encourage us as a church, don't waste it. Don't waste that time. Don't take it lightly. When you, when you hear the testimony of how somebody came to Christ as we do that before they're baptized, know that there's a reason for that. Because their baptism is so intimately connected to their response to the gospel of Jesus Christ when they were saved. And so we hear their testimony. Don't, don't waste that. When you see them go into the waters, don't waste that. that. That's for a purpose that we think of them being their old man buried and dead, raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. When, when you hear them ask that question that we ask in our baptisms, of, what's your confession? What's your confession today? And they say, Jesus is my Lord. He's my Savior. Don't, don't, that's for a reason. Because this is to identify allegiance to Christ through this baptism. Consider what they're saying. Every time we do a baptism, I want to encourage you to do this. And consider what they are saying through their baptism. Consider what we as a church are saying. You belong to Christ. We affirm you belong to this church. And consider what God is saying. Y'all and you belong to me. You are united to my son. Don't waste baptism, okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us time here, Lord, to meditate on this topic in your word. God, please use it for the glory of your name. God, I pray that you would take confusion and bring clarity into confusion. God, I pray you you would take apathy, God, and you would bring passion into that, Lord. You'd bring zeal into that. Thank you so much, Lord, for this loving gift of baptism, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to, to before the world, God, identify with you and you with us. Thank you for your mercy in that. Thank you for everything that it points to, Lord, that you have washed us from our sins. That you have destroyed the old man and made us new, new creations in you. Thank you for that, Lord. And God, I pray that you would help us as a church. Week in and week out, God, as we baptize those who come to you. God, I pray that you allow us as a church to receive blessing from you, Lord, to receive grace from you in those times. Thank you, Lord, for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.